Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Perhaps no wine brand captures the essence of a winemaker's efforts as much as Chasing Harvest. Mike and Jennifer Cush are Chicagoans who travel the globe to make some very special wine. Though they reside in the U.S. Midwest, when Mike speaks, the passion in his voice is that of a native of the Portuguese Douro Valley or of central Otago, New Zealand. I met with Mike to talk about what it's like to make wine in growing areas that are so radically different and, of course, to taste some delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Foodeter.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Foodeter.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Leonard. Joining me today is Mike Cush, owner and winemaker of Chasing Harvest. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, John. How'd you get into wine? Well, I am, I'm from Chicago. We're in Chicago here at the moment. And, and I suppose, you know, that's not necessarily a, a professional, at least on the winemaking side. Right. Most people I talk to, they either, you know, grew up in the wine country or their, you know, their grandfather had some vineyard somewhere in some wine country or... Right, Chicagoans typically aren't in the wine business in the, in the production side. Right, exactly. I mean, Chicago certainly has been a good market for uh, for wine, but uh, yeah, in terms of vineyards and winemaking, uh, yeah. I, and, and so, wine. I guess I came into it uh, a bit later. I mean, it was a bit around growing up, but not necessarily uh, too much. And maybe when I went to college and I, I studied engineering, which ultimately uh, is a bit useful in uh, winemaking in terms of some of the more technical aspects. But worked at some restaurants uh, to help uh, finance a bit of sort of the college, and you get exposed to some fine wines, and maybe so that was the beginning. And I had a had a couple classes that were uh, pretty inspirational, and then uh, it never left me. It was always something that was uh, something that I had an interest in, and did a bit of some travels with it, and then it at one point had the inspiration to take a a real leap, and uh, I headed out to California. And I uh, had an opportunity to work with a, a good winemaker who's still a good friend. Uh, and it was, you know, one of these uh, intern sort of crush positions, production assistant, uh, you know, lowest uh, the types of positions as you could sort of imagine within a winery. But I, I just loved every aspect of the work and uh, asked a lot of questions. And it was, you know, vintage time is certainly a, a lot of work, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, but uh, any available time I would have, I just asked questions and spent a lot of time. Uh, this uh, this first vintage, I was in uh, Sonoma County, which is still a pretty special place for me, and spent a lot of time at the Healdsburg Library, which is just a, had a you know great resource in terms of uh, wine books and winemaking books. And so, yeah, that certainly was the uh, beginning of uh, of uh, this uh, passion that certainly has kind of turned into a into a journey for us. So, did you study formally? No, no. I like I said, I have a engineering uh, undergraduate degree, and there's a bit of some chemistry there, there's a bit of some technical knowledge, and and certainly there's a kind of a, a science component that comes into winemaking. But I would generally say the winemaking, and it's not just me; it's also my wife uh, Jen as well too, because we certainly do this together. But I think we've really approached it. Uh, utilizing the experiences, the, the, the learnings that we have uh, gained from, from just being on the road. Because even though we had started originally in California, at the time, you know, when we were young winemakers, it was sort of explained because uh, a lot of times your experience in the industry is gauged by the number of harvests or vintages that you work. And, and, and this was uh, kind of new to us at that time, but they said, boy, if you're, if you're 
if you're interested to try to double your amount of experience in one year and you're willing to travel, uh, you can go to the Southern Hemisphere because the seasons are uh, are opposite. Sure. And yeah, that sounded that sounded pretty interesting to us, and so and so we did. Uh, both my wife and I, we kind of crawled our way across some of the great wine regions of the world and and worked with some good producers. Uh, I was you know fortunate to work in Burgundy and Pliny Marocher. We both Jen and I worked in the Mosul. We worked in South Africa and Argentina. Uh, Jen had also worked in the Marche Italy and uh, Cahors, France. Uh, but it's been uh, yet yeah, 10 years now that we uh, kind of focus our work on uh, two places, uh, which is uh, Douro in uh, Portugal and uh, Central Otago, New Zealand. And what's her background? How did she get into wine? Well, similar. Uh, I mean, no, and she did not have a technical. Uh, she had a bit more of kind of a marketing sort of communications type uh, type background. But but I would say both of us kind of came into wine. We met in college. We met uh, uh, sort of in our undergraduate days. And uh, yeah, Where wine was, that? was uh, we both went to Purdue, so kind okay. of being from the Midwest. So really and, true uh, Midwesterners. Yes, yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah, we are. Not a big analogy program there. And, right, not too much. <laughs> big engineering program, but yeah, not not uh, not so much in terms of an analogy program. But yeah, we both uh, equally kind of developed this passion, and uh, and it became uh, a journey for uh, for both of us. So all these uh, great producers in great regions, and uh, we worked hard, and and it was all of these experiences and all these learnings is 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 more what we kind of rely upon uh, in terms of how we kind of approach our our winemaking. Tell me about chasing harvest. The name comes from the fact that that's how you guys started. You started chasing that harvest from northern hemisphere to southern hemisphere all around the globe. When did you decide to? launch as a brand and why did you decide to start making wines where you were making with that label it's not to say that that was always the intent uh yeah chasing harvest which was this expression which i i mentioned uh this kind of idea that young winemakers uh you know kind of go back and forth between the hemispheres to to get this uh extra experience and then ultimately with our travels uh just some some fate uh, ultimately we never would have anticipated that we would have been in uh, central otago new zealand or uh, or doro portugal uh, and uh, and then and then yes this uh, ability to uh, start a project of our own uh, which uh, came about with some uh, yeah some help and some uh, uh, encouragement uh, from some other winemaker friends but an op- an opportunity to to create something our own was just uh, another way for us to kind of pursue our, our passion in wine and and winemaking and and yeah they, sort of they we kind of then ultimately decided to use chasing harvest is the name because you know a couple from Chicago making wines and uh, Central Otago, New Zealand and the Douro certainly seems to c- capture a bit of our story as uh, as a as a couple of winemakers uh, from Chicago you almost couldn't have picked two more different regions to make wine in I mean, it's not like you're doing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay here and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay there. Obviously, anytime you're making wine in Portugal, it's unique. It's Portuguese. Right. You're made oh, up of sure. all these different varieties that, don't worry, it's delicious. It's a field blend. It's Portuguese. Right. And when you go to Central Otago, obviously very new world, different kind of varieties, mm. different kind of expression of fruit. Tell me why you chose those two places. It would be difficult to find two... Uh, regions that would be so opposite, uh, and and quite literally geographically uh, opposite. So Central Otago, New Zealand, and Douro are literally the antipodes. If I was to drill a hole from where we're based in uh, New Zealand, you would you would come out 
right about Madrid, which is you know, not too far of a <laughs> drive close. from, uh, from yeah. Doro. So certainly ge geographically, and then and then yeah, as you sort of mentioned, uh, you know, one based in the old world, uh, one based in the new world. Viticulturally, uh, Doro being a warm climate versus uh, Central Otago, New Zealand, a, a cool climate. A tradition of uh, blends in uh, in Portugal versus uh, uh, single varietal uh, in, uh, in in Central Otago. Uh, and the, and in terms of the varietals as well too, uh, you know these these Douro Portuguese varietals that are certainly a bit unique to the region into the into the country, and then uh, Pinot Noir and uh, Riesling and uh, other aromatic whites uh, for uh, Central Otago, New Zealand. So in some ways, it's very satisfying because these two regions really do complement each other uh, uh, rather nicely because the styles of wines are very very different from these from these two places. But yeah, it is really fate. Doro, it was uh, a good friend. He's, he's still a, a very good friend of ours, Portuguese. He had uh, we had met in New Zealand, of all places. I'd certainly known about Doro, but uh, I uh, had never been. And uh, oh, we were we were both working the, the harvest, the vintage together, and uh, we would just kind of talk a bit about the region, and would would tell me some things, and it sounded very very interesting. Uh, and through him, I got the opportunity to work with uh, Nieport, uh, Dirk Nieport. And so that was my uh, first experience in Douro. That was a very special vintage. Uh, uh, Dirk was certainly a bit of an inspiration uh, for me. And then when, that, when I saw that region, and Jen was there as well too, it, it, it's just a magical and a special place. And so when an opportunity came about to continue our work with our, our own wines, yeah, that, is, that was just uh, you know, too rare of an opportunity not to, uh, not to continue. And then obviously with Central Otago, again, a region I never anticipated. I did some work in New Zealand prior to working in Central Otago in, in Marlborough, uh, and then ultimately an opportunity to be down in Central Otago. But Pinot Noir, which certainly is a special varietal, it's a, it's a unique thing. It, it, it offers unique experiences uh, in the glass. And very few places in the world uh, really uh, you know, produce uh, uh, high-quality uh, Pinot Noir. I mean, certainly uh, some well-positioned spots in California and Oregon and Burgundy, obviously, with its, uh, with its history. And central Otago, New Zealand, even though it's a young region, uh, you know, the uh, first vines were planted in uh, you know, the early 1970s, there is what many believe an opportunity to make world-class Pinot Noir uh, that may be some of the finest examples of, uh, of Pinot Noir in the world, where, where there's these opportunities to get unique uh, ex flavors and uh, aromas and uh, expression of uh, typicity and terroir. And, and so, yeah, it's satisfying and, and uh, to be in both of these places, but yeah, not, not places that we ever would have planned or anticipated. <laughs> Do you own your own vineyards and facilities, or are you sourcing fruit and going to a custom crush facility or sharing winemaking facilities? And if so, how did you work all that out? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, no. So my wife and I, we don't own any vineyards. We work with uh, good growers, good farmers. We source the, uh, the best grapes that we can, and, uh, but we do all the winemaking by our, by our own hands. And I, I do have a day job in uh, each of those places as well, uh, do some winemaking work. So you're like a consulting winemaker, and then you're making your own wine. Right. And so, so we have our own relationships with these vineyards, with these growers, and it's a bit different in New Zealand and in, uh, in Portugal. And then certainly I, I bring my own barrels and certainly a lot of my own equipment and my own ideas. And then, yes, I'm able in almost a kind of a custom crush sort of uh, situation, although it's the winery that I also do my, sure. my, uh, my work at, uh, that's where we make the wines. And uh, and yeah, generally that's worked out. That's worked out very well. And and almost to some extent, it's a bit of the the life we live. And 
you know, this, this cycle that we do uh, in the Northern Hemisphere for part of the year and Southern Hemisphere for part of the year. And we put the, put the wine to barrel and we got a few friends who uh, are able to kind of watch the barrels for us and keep them topped up. And then we come back to kind of finish and, uh, and then get the winery ready for the next vintage. Uh, you never know how life might go, but uh, yeah, to own the vineyards or to kind of participate in the growing season, that would obviously be a bit complicated in terms of uh, a travel sure. schedule uh, <laughs> between the two places. Let's talk a little bit about Centro Otago specifically. What kind of wines are you making there? And what's special about where you're sourcing your fruit from? So yeah, Central Otago, just in terms of the geography, it's uh, located at the, uh, the southern part of the South Island of New Zealand, southernmost wine region in the world. There's, there's nothing further south. And it is a region that, uh, you know, certainly features a lot of kind of smaller, more handcrafted kind of approach, high quality uh, uh, wine winemaking. Uh, but we are a region that in some ways we've distinguished ourselves in, in, this, in the sense that we focus on Pinot Noir. So 70% of our plantings are dedicated to Pinot, to Pinot Noir. You know, Sauvignon Blanc, which certainly uh, New Zealand is uh, famous <laughs> sure, for and sure. certainly kind of based in, uh, in Marlborough. That, that would be very difficult to find in central Otago. Otherwise, uh, for our white varietals, we make uh, very characterful Riesling and Pinot Gris and uh, Gewurztraminer, Chardonnay, if, uh, although that's uh, also a bit uh, not as, uh, as typical. And... And then, and then, yes, I think with those varietals and certainly Pinot Noir, this idea of kind of the subregions sort of expressing itself differently, uh, some of these vineyard sites expressing themselves differently, and there's there's a handful of uh, subregions. And and with my day job, I've had an opportunity to work with a number of these different vineyards and a number of these different uh, uh, regions and, and growers. And and so, having these experiences, having some understanding of the region, ultimately, uh, and even a bit with our winemaking, which has been a bit of a journey. I tend to focus in on two regions. One is uh, Alexandra, which is the most southerly of the, uh, the subregions in central Otago. And then another very famous region as well, too, in, uh, in Bannockburn, which is... Uh, mm-hmm. and, and yes, the wines can really express themselves very differently. And, uh, and even for me, we certainly look to kind of find opportunities to, to have, our, have our own take on uh, our own expression of, uh, of central Otago. And how much wine would you be making in our winter, the Southern Hemisphere summer, in Central Otago? How, how much wine are you making? Oh, we still do pretty small, pretty small quantities. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's not more than a couple hundred cases of Pinot Noir, and then I, I do produce, uh, re, I do produce a bit of some Riesling as well. Uh, I've also started to produce a bit of uh, some rosé, but uh, no, you have to now. <laughs> oh, well, and, and yes, I mean that was something that we came to. It, it actually took us a couple of years to even kind of think through the concept of it, but uh, to make a high quality rosé. Uh, so that's cert- that's something we've kind of added to the uh, portfolio. There's always a bit of sometimes some improvisation and uh, inspiration that uh, uh, that that we. T- Certainly, utilize. Uh, we we do have a very limited quantity of uh, a noble rot uh, riesling as well too. That uh, that we that uh, developed in the riesling vineyard that we work with down in Central Otago. Lucky you. So <laughs> yeah. So no, it's uh, it's a, it's a special place for for you know, most definitely. All right, let's travel up to the hemisphere now. Tell me about where in the Douro you're working and some of the special things about the wines you're making there. Yeah, so, so Douro, uh, which is a, a region that's located in uh, northern uh, Portugal, uh, takes its name from the, uh, the river, the, the, the Douro River, that uh, starts in the Atlantic and makes its way inland uh, and then ultimately enters uh, Spain, where it's known as the, uh, the Douro. 
the uh, and the region which is uh, demarcated and may very well be very well may be the oldest uh, demarcated wine region in the world where they drew the map and said everything inside is Doro everything outside is uh, is not it's broken into three sections the Baixa Corgo the Sima Corgo and then the Doro Superior which is nearest to Spain and it gets uh, drier and hotter as you go towards uh, towards Spain. So we're located in the Sima Corgo, which uh, is generally uh, maybe uh, considered to be where some of the very best Doro wines and, and also the, the ports uh, uh, would be located. And then we're in a little uh, sub-valley called the, the Pinal Valley. And it's, it's a very beautiful spot, the Doro, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It features these uh, stone terraces that uh, hug the contours of the, uh, of the valley. And uh, the vineyards in Doro are, are graded. And so this vineyard that I do my work with, uh, called the Quinta da Costa do Pinhal, but it's A-graded, which is the, the very top. Yeah, 17 hectares, uh, but uh, has a, a range of uh, uh, different sites and aspects. And, and so I'm very fortunate that uh, I get to uh, utilize some of the very best sections for just the handful of barrels that we do with our wine. So I do make a couple different red wines. Uh, one that is uh, featured on the uh, uh, the old vine Vitish Velish sections, which is kind of the rarest sort of sections. Uh, but th- those wines I may not make uh, necessarily too, too dissimilarly from what you might find in Bordeaux or some other places in a cement vat, although I try to extract very uh, gently and a little bit longer maceration uh, French oak barrels for sometimes upwards of uh, two years uh, or longer. And then another wine in which I make in a traditional uh, uh, stone lagar, uh, so that allows for a different expression. So you do the foot treading? Like... Yes, we do. So it, and that's a, a little bit more recent of a wine for us. But uh, uh, yeah, just the three three varietals, but uh, uh, co-fermented in a traditional Are they varietals bar. or are they... Yeah, so on the Quinta, we do have some sections that are these old vine field blends. And it is the rarest sort of a section. And these are you know special little... And, the, and even in Doro, they're beginning to uh, uh, lose them almost to some mm. extent. And so they certainly are a, a treasure. And uh, our old vine field blend wine, uh, that's uh, certainly a feature. And then uh, we do have some sections of the Quinta that are planted monovarietally. And these aren't young vines necessarily. These are 50 to 60-year-old uh, vines. But they're three very good varietals, the Torriga Nacional, the Tinto Harish, and the Torriga Franca. And they are co-fermented together in this traditional stone trough. And uh, it's a piece of architecture that's, you know, because the winery in which we make the wines uh, from the early 1800s, and uh, it's made of schist and granite. It is foot tread once, which is a very traditional moment in the, uh, in the harvest. But then after that, I extract the wine rather gently. Sure. And, and then uh, the aging is kind of done in a combination of uh, French oak barrels, but uh, mainly neutral. And then a little bit of tank as well, too, to kind of almost preserve some of the varietal character of the, of the wine. And you also do a white blend in the... Yes, yeah, and that, that's a kind of a bit of a rarity as well, too. Uh, yeah, Doro, which is a, a bit of a warmer climate that's maybe known more for their reds, but they make some very characterful white wines. And uh, uh, so, yes, we're very fortunate to work with a vineyard. It, it's a, a bit higher elevation from this uh, Quinta that is the, the main source of my, my red grapes, uh, but higher elevation, a little northerly facing, uh, but also comes from an old vine field blend, which in Doro we call a Vinish Velish, which uh, features these uh, unique... Uh, yeah, white Portuguese uh, varietals, uh, and uh, yeah, we we take a real meticulous kind of approach with the winemaking. But uh, yeah, that that's always been a uh, kind of a, a special wine uh, for us. Should we taste some wine? For sure. Yeah. All right, let's do that. Where should we start? So yeah, so I've got uh, Ardora White, something that's a bit uh, unique. These come from uh, very old vines. Some of these vines may be over a hundred years old in age. 
Uh, so certainly a, a special vineyard. And it, it, these are varietals. Uh, the, the main three would be Rabagato, Viozino, and Goveo. But there would be others, and these are, yeah, certainly, yeah, you It's so Portuguese, you know? Right. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah, and it's almost to some extent, it's not to say, because these are three very good varietals, and that is a, a kind of a significant component of the wine, uh, but there would certainly be others. But it's almost to some extent that these, just these old vine vineyards, they really have their own sort of distinct character, and they kind of express themselves in the in the, uh, in the the wine. And what's the vintage on this wine? So this is the 2015. It's a pretty color. It's not too delicate, but not bold by any means. Great nose. Like a lot of stone fruit, huh? Like Yes, you do tend to get a little bit of these little kind of pear stone. too mm. and like some lime leaf, but a good amount of minerality. Yeah, very nice. How much of this did you make? Oh, well, and this vineyard that we, we kind of work with, it's uh, it's very small quantities. So, it was no more than 45 cases. That's all we made mm. on this wine. 45 cases. 45 okay. 45 cases. So, not the easiest wine to source, but it's available out there. If you're not in the Chicago area, it's definitely, you could probably order it somehow. Oh, sure. It is. And it, yeah, it, it does. Yeah, it is kind of out there at the moment. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, not, not too much of it. Mm. Yeah. And, and uh, just in terms of the techniques, it's all, yeah, hand harvested. We, we do use a sorting table, which is a pretty in- important tool, I think, in Doro. Because, yeah, these, these old vine field blends, I mean, they're wonderful. And, we, and we're very careful in our harvesting. But uh, to have the opportunity to use the sorting table to really just ensure that only the very best clusters kind of make it in the vat is, mm-hmm. uh, is, is important. It's a little fleshier on the palate than the nose might mm. lead you to believe. Not in a bad way. Just the fruit is a little rounder than that kind of more, you know, like, like I said, there's those kind of pear mm notes in there and the peach flavors that sometimes can be a little on the linear side it's, it's fuller on the palate than that yeah te- texture has always been very important for us for all of our wines and yeah there's some elements to the 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 vineyard itself obviously which kind of contributes a bit to that but our technique so we do a little bit of skin contact so overnight okay. uh, skin contact and then pressed and then decanted with a little bit of solids to french oak barrels not not so much new barrels, but not necessarily so old, but uh, the use of the barrels. So the fermentation takes place in barrels, uh, and then I leave it on. So after the alcoholic fermentation and the yeast lees settle, I leave it on the lees. So a little bit of that sort of... But you don't leaf. work the lees at all, do you? You know, I do do batonage just twice, essentially. So as opposed to kind of a program where you may do it weekly, right, right, but, right. We, but just a couple times, almost a little bit to kind of protect the wine a little bit. But uh, But yes... The texture is kind of very important for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the leasiness by no means is prominent. Yeah, I think what you've right. done is you, you haven't made a creamy wine, but right. you've made the body. It supports the body. Very nice. Very nice wine. Wow. And the, the acidity is so nice and bright. This is like many Portuguese wines. It wants to be with food. Yeah, most definitely. And I think, yeah, that's also an approach with a lot of our winemaking as well, too. There's always been this relationship with food and wine and and, uh, and yes, so to kind of be able to allow the wines to be used in that sort of a way is, is certainly kind of important for us. Great. What do we have next? So now we're making a journey as well. So the first wine being from Douro in, uh, in Portugal. So we'll now go to Central Otago and another wine style that we have, which is our, our rosé of, uh, of Pinot Noir. It's rosé of Pinot Noir. Yes. So again, yeah, kind of rosé being a... Uh, our Pinot Noir being a real feature of the region. And this was a wine that, uh, this is our second vintage of it, but we were a bit thoughtful in terms of how we wanted to approach it because I certainly wanted to have a rosé that uh, had a bit of uh, uh, 
character and concentration and uh, but to solve some finesse as well. So a very good vineyard. And you know, rosé, you can certainly make a number of different ways. And uh, this is uh, uh, direct press. So this is farmed specifically with the intent of making rosé. And wasn't overcropped. The yields were actually quite low. Uh, and then all hand harvested, sorted in the winery. I use a uh, so in some ways, some of the inspiration for this wine comes from uh, from some of the, the champagne and the sparkling wine base wines. So I use the uh, the champagne press cycle. So that's a very specific sort of a technique uh, with the press. That's a gradual building of pressures. Uh, again, whole cluster in the press, uh, minimizing rotations. But almost, you know, most importantly is you're taking the best cut of the juice so mm-hmm. the and not using the harder press. Before you get to the harder stuff, right? And uh, again, too, with this focus on texture and uh, body and, uh, and depth, the, uh, the juice is uh, decanted with a little bit of solids, and it's also fermented in uh, French oak barrels. Interesting. But, but neutral. I'm not necessarily uh, uh, intending to try to add any oakiness uh, to the wines. But fermentation in barrel, uh, and then uh, again, after the alcoholic fermentation, the yeast leaves settle. I leave it uh, on the leaves, so surly aging. There's, you know, a lot of times rosés, you may see a little bit of residual sugar. This wine is dry. There's no residual sugar. But the wine does feature just a little bit of uh, malolactic fermentation. So okay. I let the barrels kick off the malolactic fermentation. Not full, because I still want to maintain the, the freshness of the, uh, of the wine. But just a, just a little bit of the malolactic to contribute a bit to the uh, to the texture and maybe a bit to the aromatics of the wine. Well, really floral, pretty. Wow, a lot of finesse to that. Great weight. Great flavors, citrus and... A little bit of underripe strawberry, huh? Some herbs. Very nice. A lot of times you think about rosé and it seems to... They seem to come from generally... Much warmer growing areas. We think about rosé, obviously we think of Provence. Sure. How is a cool climate rosé different than maybe a rosé from a warmer climate? To have a rosé from a cool climate is uh, aids in uh, a lot of ways that, you know, wines from cool climates, uh, uh, their advantage. Uh, so you're able to have fresh acidity and uh, maintain that sort of freshness in the wines. And, and, and for me, with my winemaking, I certainly like to have some finesse and some elegance. And uh, this and, wine has that for sure. And then so, yeah, so certainly that kind of aids in it as well. And, and then again, the, the varietal. I mean, Pinot Noir is a, is a varietal suited for a, a cool climate. In a warm climate, it would be a completely different type of a wine altogether. So, you know, for me at least, it's a combination of these, uh, these features of a cool climate that uh, certainly contributes significantly to, to the wine. This is really pretty wine, really delicious. What do we have next? And so to finish, we'll stay in central Otago and... We'll look at the uh, the red wine style of uh, of Pinot Noir, which again is the uh, you know this is certainly kind of the wine that uh, the region is is known for. You know, many would have the opinion that uh, Central Otago is where you find the uh, the finest examples of uh, Pinot Noir in uh, in New Zealand, and uh, and and again, it's it's a bit of the although I'm very passionate about the. Uh, the Riesling and the other varietals that you would find in the region. I mean, Pinot Noir is certainly something special to us and and is the, is perhaps the main motivation for our continued travels to, when, to this part of the world. When you find a place that Pinot Noir grows well in, it's a good thing. You know, unfortunately, I think Pinot Noir, because it's so trendy right now, is being uh, grown in places that would probably be suited better for other grape varieties. But when you find the space that Pinot Noir works in, 
it's really special. Central Otago, though, sometimes it can be a bit less common to find here in the States in terms of New Zealand's more traditional trading partners, the UK or London or Asia, or, you know, some of the other markets. It, it is well represented as um, being among the very finest of uh, New World uh, Pinot Noir. And this is 2014? Uh, two, uh, the, yeah, 2014, uh, yeah, Pinot Noir. This is, uh, it's still a baby, isn't it? It's... Yeah. And most, yeah, that's the other thing too, I think, with Central Otago as well. I mean, you know, I think a lot of us, we do uh, compare ourselves often with Burgundy and, you know, kind of being its the ancestral home for uh, for Pinot Noir. And, and Central Otago is a region. We, we really do try to establish a relationship with, with Burgundy. We have a ex- exchange program where uh, uh, winemakers from Burgundy will come over and work the vintage in uh, Central Otago. Oh, cool. And, and then winemakers from uh, Central Otago that work in, in Burgundy. And uh, yes, everything from the idea that the kind of the typicity of the region, and uh, but in terms of our techniques as well, you know, kind of our approach to making as, as high quality Pinot Noir as, as we can. And the nose, there's a great earthiness and there's a savoriness, like almost not quite soy, but getting into that kind of umami mm. kind of aromatics. And then flowers. Nice weight. There's a there's finesse on the palate, still still youthful, kind of more that moving more from the ripe strawberry into the cherry kind mm-hmm. of flavors. Mm-hmm. A little tannic, huh? A little grippy on the tannin for Pinot. Well, they're and, fine, but they're grippy. And that is, and I think for Central Otago is I think I think it is yes, where you get these again the varietal catch. Although you know we we tend to get the cherry, although I think it's a little bit more in the yeah, sort of the, the darker cherry at right. the end of the spectrum. But these savory qualities, these earthy qualities, these mineral qualities, and then maybe it almost depends a bit on the typicity of the uh, the vineyards, but this structural kind of component to the wines as well too. I mean certainly there's many fine examples from you know Burgundy that are certainly kind of known for their kind of structure and kind of depth uh, to them. And and I do think that you can, you know, find these characteristics in uh, in Central Otago uh, Pinot as, as well. And even some of our techniques, we take a very careful, yeah, handcrafted sort of approach. I mean, it's all hand harvested. It's, you know, sorted in the winery, you know, traditional open top fermenters. I do um, a little bit of whole cluster, not not too much, about 15 to no more than 20%, put it on the bottom of my ferment and the destem fruit on top. I try to extract as gently as I can, so it's a little bit cooler fermentation temperatures, and even how I do the punch downs. It's almost to the point that I'm just gently wetting the cap mm-hmm. just once a day. But I do leave it on the skins for a moderately long uh, amount of time. So, uh, What does that get you? Well, these 24 to 25 days, and for me, that's where I am building this structure. Uh, this kind of the, the length and the body, and then ultimately the uh, some of the some of the tannin profile that that uh, that you find in the wine, and then yeah, gently pressed, and then 100% uh, yeah, French oak barrels, but more second fill and third fill barrels because I'm not necessarily trying to put a lot of overt oakiness on the wines. A malactic in barrel, leave it on the malactic le- uh, lees, uh, and then unfined and unfiltered at the time of uh, bottling as, as well. Wow, really delicious wines. Now, I know you're available in Illinois and in Indiana. I think you got a little bit in Southern California. You've got some distribution. If people aren't in those areas, what can they do to get your wines? Oh, well, they could certainly kind of, you know, f- feel free to, you know, check our website, uh, chasingharvest.com, or feel free to reach out, and we'll do our very best to kind of put you in the right direction. But, yeah, we are a bit uh, limited in terms of where we're available. Uh, yeah, the places you kind of mentioned, and, uh, yeah, Chicago being a bit of a, a base for us when we're kind of back here in the States. And then a little bit internationally, uh, New Zealand, uh, our wines oh, sure. are also kind of featured as well, and a l- little bit in Europe. But, uh uh, yeah, kind of a certainly a, a handcrafted sort of limited in terms of our availability. 
Well, Mike, what you're doing is truly maybe not unique, but certainly not common by chasing that harvest from the southern and northern hemisphere. Love that you're making wines with different expressions, but all along with the same philosophy. Thanks for joining me on the show, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, John. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thank you.